Hey, what's going on? It's Josh, your host of the If You Mark in Your Bible podcast. I am here with Keaton, and today we are going to study Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. My guest, as mentioned earlier, is Keaton. He's the preacher at the Rising Church of Christ. I met Keaton about a year ago. Keaton, why don't you give us a little uh, introduction about yourself? Well, as you said, yeah, I'm Keaton Shrum. I'm the minister at the Rising Congregation, a small community, not not too far from you, about 45 minutes or so from where you are. And uh, I've been here for about a year. Uh, I'm a graduate of Brown Trail School of Preaching. I came before that. I worked with a couple of congregations in Oklahoma, and so glad to be here. Glad to be in Arkansas, and and it's been it's been a blessing to be around so many wonderful people. Appreciate that. Keaton's in rising with his wife, uh, Chandra, and his daughter, Reagan. Uh, Keaton and I have a similar background. Both grew up in uh, preacher's homes. Uh, both kind of went into secular work. Uh, we're close to the same age and decided to leave Oklahoma and go to school uh, about the same time. He went to Brown Trail down in Fort Worth. I went to Memphis over obviously in Memphis, and then we ended up about 40, 45 minutes away from each other, like he said, and starting around the same time. So uh, I've enjoyed getting to know him over the last year, and uh, Lord willing, I look forward to uh, many more years in service of the kingdom. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, I'm going to go ahead and read the text, then give some context, and then we'll jump into the marking and the uh, exegesis of uh, the text. Verse 1, uh, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your turmoil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So here, if you have a red letter edition of the Bible, you probably notice that chapter two and all of chapter three and a significant part at the end of chapter one is red. John, in his vision, uh, uh, wrote down the words of Jesus. And in chapter two, Jesus starts to address the seven churches of Asia to whom the letter is written. And he starts with Ephesus. He says uh, at the beginning, he says the words to him who holds the seven stars in his right hand among the seven golden lampstands. If you go back and I just drew a line from that up to 20, because there Jesus explains who the seven stars are and who the seven lampstands are. In verse 20, it says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches themselves. Now, angels, uh, I think oftentimes we say the word angel and we think of the heavenly beings. 
but angel really just means messenger. Uh, I believe the messenger here is not uh, an angelic being, but simply the one who is going to deliver this letter to the church at Ephesus. Uh, and that's significant because Jesus says that he holds the seven stars in his right hand, signifying authority. Uh, and I think that statement right there is endorsing uh, the message. And what I mean by that is, is when they bring the message to the church at Ephesus, the church would understand that they're not listening to the words of the one who brought the message, uh, but the ones of Jesus, the one who sent the message. I also have uh, underlined uh, seven golden lampstands, and I think it's fitting that we use that phrase to describe the churches because of Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Uh, Matthew 5, 14, you're the light of the world. 15, no one lights a lamp to hide it under a basket. 16, uh, let your light so shine before men. And so John or Jesus through John carries on that idea of the church being the light of the world. And so he designates the term lampstand uh, to them. Uh, there's a biography uh, of Jesus in these two chapters. Uh, when you look at how he addresses each church, he talks about himself. He gives himself certain designations here. He says he's the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, showing his authority. And then it also says who walks among the seven lampstands. And I'm reminded of Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 12 when it says that he is in the midst of the congregation. And I think that's the thought here, except here. Rather than participating with the congregation, as in Hebrews chapter 2, what we have here is, I think we just lost Keaton. <clears throat> what we have here is we have uh, a uh, one who inspects. He's inspecting uh, the congregation, which is humbling uh, to a, a degree. Let me just... So back as we were saying, humbling to a degree, when we think of the thought that Jesus is uh, in the, the midst, expecting uh, what we do, uh, I think our worship takes a different tone. I think maybe our actions take a different tone. If Jesus were sitting physically in the front of the auditorium, watching us participate in the acts of worship, how would things be different? I think that's the question we have to ask. And I think that's the point that John uh, points out here uh, in Revelation 2.1, that uh, the, the one who holds the seven stars, the one who sent the message and, endure, and endorses this message is also there as this message is being written, uh, read to the congregation, inspecting uh, what they do. We'll give it a few seconds. We'll wait for Keaton to see if he comes back. Technical difficulties. Keaton, what do you have on verse one of chapter two? Uh, I think you made some great points on that. I'm, I'm certainly with you on, on all of it. One thing I would add is when you think about the seven lampstands, you, you know, our minds go back to the tabernacle. And 
the presence of God being with his people. And so I think, you know, you made good points about Christ being there, and that's really what it is. And so you think about this angel. Again, I agree with you 100%. Why would John be writing to a, a heavenly angelic being? You know, that right. doesn't fit. But the, the purpose of that is, I mean, you think about one having a messenger, and then this message is coming from someone who has authority, and, hey, he's walking among you. He knows what you're doing. He knows what's happening in that congregation. And so he's going to you know, be there, present, know what you're doing. And guess what? He has the right to remove your lampstand, too. So there's a message of authority coming. And we see that authority by the right hand. You know, I mean, that, that's, that's the authority. So this mm-hmm. message of authority is coming. You need to sit up and take notice because he's got something to say to you. Uh, that's great. Great point. Also want to point out that the word angel in verse uh, here in verse one is singular, uh, which talks about the messenger. And there's some who believe that maybe the messenger is a bishop uh, uh, overseeing the congregation. Uh, we know Acts 14 and verse 23 that the bishop or the hierarchy of the church is always plural. Uh, and so, uh, again, like Keaton said, angel here is the messenger. Uh, why would John write to the angelic beings in heaven? Uh, one, uh, but two, uh, this is a singular individual which would rule out any type of uh, lone hierarchy uh, within the church, which we unfortunately see today. Uh, what do you have on verse two and, and three uh, combined? Because those two kind of run together. Well, you know, I'm I'm reading out the New King James. It's a little bit different than yours, but we have the, basically the same, you know. Of course, this message being sent to them, I know your works. Uh, and he talks about the good that they are doing. Just quickly, though, I'd like to make mention, when, when Jesus delivers this message to all seven churches, right, it's going to go to each of them. He has a letter or, you know, a message for each of them. It's really all about acknowledging the challenges of faith. And it's good for us to remember that even back in the first century, there there was a challenge to being faithful, and there's still a challenge today. And so he's going to dive into all that. Well, one of the dangers is getting lost in the routine of it. And that kind of was where I see verses 2 and 3 really hitting here. Uh, Jesus saying, I know your works, your labor, your patience. Again, all that's great stuff. You're going through the motions, and they're good motions, but he's going to come up here in a little while and say that he has something that he doesn't really like. Now, I believe yours, uh, where mine says works and labor, yours mentioned toil, I think. Uh, toil and your patient endurance. Yep. Okay. Well, I mean, that's something, that's a serious labor. So they're, they're working hard and they're working probably with something that there's some tribulation to. This isn't just easy work. This is something right. that's really putting forth effort and they're struggling to deal with it. And then, uh, their patience, or as you mentioned, their endurance. You know, you think about the first century church, these people being under the rule of Rome, they would have had to have some endurance because they're going to have to continue in what they're doing, knowing that there's going to be a lot of opposition to it. Uh, And then as he moves into this fact that you cannot bear those who are evil, well, again, that's, I mean, that's a pretty big thing. They, they are doing a lot of good works. They're doing a lot of good works for the kingdom, but there's still something lacking. Uh, that's great. Great point. Um, I've underlined that phrase, your toil and your patience or your works and your labor and so forth. 
I put Acts 19, starting in verse 8. Uh, when we read about Paul's issues in Ephesus, you have the riots uh, that started in Ephesus. You have the sons of uh, Siva uh, in Ephesus. And it's not far-fetched for us to, uh, I would say, assume, but I think it's stronger than an assumption that the church uh, faced and endured the same type of problems that Paul faced when he was in Ephesus. He left Ephesus, and they remained behind. The problems didn't leave with Paul. Uh, the problems probably stayed with the church, so they're enduring the same thing. I also like uh, at the end when he says that you have tested uh, those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. And I just put next to that Acts 20 and verse 29, when Paul warned them that there would be ravenous wolves coming in uh, to do just this. and. Uh, I think we see here the effectiveness of warning the church uh, about the false teachings that are that are coming. I think there's wisdom here that we see in uh, Romans 16 of marking those who teach false doctrine uh, for this purpose. Paul warned them about it. Uh, those individuals did come in just as he warned. And I think Jesus is commending them that they did exactly what Paul intended for them to do. Uh, when he did leave, was stand up to the false teachers and call them up or call them out. Uh, the only thing that I have in verse 3, if I just circled that phrase, for my name's sake, uh, and, and this kind of goes back to the point Keaton was making as far as uh, the rituals and the works and so forth uh, mean nothing unless they're done for the right reason, which is going to lead us or segue us in uh, to the next uh, verse, uh, verse 4. But I have this against you that you have abandoned uh, the love you had at first. What do you have there, Keaton? Well, just, you know, thinking about quickly back into the, the last two verses, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 9, Jesus says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. So it's not the first time that we've seen an idea of someone doing something for his name's sake. And it may lead to tribulations, but, they're still doing it, and he's he's commending them for that. Hey, again, you're doing a good job by this thing. By this, move down to verse three. They haven't become weary. They're still, you know, they're still laboring for his name's sake. But then there is a problem, mm -hmm. and again, to me, the the importance in that. I have this against you that you have left your first love. Well. You get down to verse five and he talks about your first works. First love and first work kind of go together. Kind of reminds mm -hmm. you, you know, what is he talking about with your first love? Now, one thing that always comes to my mind when I read this scripture is the old hymn that we sing sometimes, when my love to Christ grows weak. Because that's kind of what I see. They're at a time when they're going through the motions. They're doing good works. They're doing everything right but they've lost the heart for it. And that's a dangerous place to be, but it's something that any Christian can experience at any time. I'm glad you made that point. I have underlined uh, the first love and I have the works you did at first. And I drew a line to this, to that and made that uh, to make that very same point. Uh, the love and the works go hand in hand. Some of the commentaries I, I read kind of argue, not argue, but they examine what the first love is. First love for whom? Uh, I think 
you've touched on it to a degree as far as the zeal and the the excitement uh, for Christianity, uh, which they had at the beginning. Uh, some some uh, believe it's Christ. The love that they had for Christ had diminished, uh, hadn't gone away, but wasn't the same that it was at the beginning. Uh, I think most of them agree, and I would kind of lend uh, my thought into this uh, realm, is that their love for one another maybe had started to to waver a little bit uh and again you you your love for someone is tested you think of a newlywed couple everything's great at the beginning and then uh the habits uh start to get in and and the love that you have for your spouse uh begins to show through because that newness had kind of worn off and you have that now that undying love despite maybe some of the things that uh annoy you or so forth and my wife doesn't annoy me at all i'm just gonna say that publicly here but (laughs) uh but then the last one is is some think it's maybe the love for humanity Uh, and i thought that was interesting because you tie this back up to the the previous two verses and you look at everything they're enduring uh and everything uh that they've uh, overcome to this point and they haven't grown weary but have they grown cynical have they grown maybe uh, immune? Uh, Jerry Martin was here uh, last Wednesday speaking on our summer series, and he gave just a brief background of how he got to the church. And it was an interesting story. Single mom came to needed help. Uh, his aunt was a member of the church. Uh, and so she talked to the the elders of, of the congregation down there in CrossFit. And they they helped her out. They took her, I think, took her some money, took her some food and kind of helped her uh, get on her feet uh, from that situation. And he said that uh, out of gratitude, they attended a a few services uh, because they felt like it was the right thing to do as far as what they did for them. Uh, And then they left. Uh, They went back to the denomination that they were at. And he said but something in that two to three weeks touched his mom where she started to question where they were at and they ended up coming back and converting. And then obviously Jerry was converted and now he's a, uh, been a preacher for years and teaching and so forth. Um, and he made that point. He made the point that sometimes we get cynical when it comes to the benevolent standpoint, because there are so many people who take advantage, uh, of that, uh, that maybe we look at that one person who asked the next time as they're just here to for a free hand now trying to take advantage of what we have. And he made that point. Never get to that point where you start to get so cynical that you don't help because you may miss that one person who is genuinely interested in, in what you have to do. And and I think that we that's what we kind of have here with the church at Ephesus is they have become so fervent uh, in their defense of the truth that they've maybe become cynical, untrusting, uh, and that obviously leads to possibly unloving, uh, which is, uh, contradictory to what Christ intended. I can agree with you there. Uh, I still, I, you know, I do think there is this aspect of that. Maybe they had just forgotten why they were doing it. it you know, if you're going out and working for the Lord and you've become cynical about it, Perhaps you're not as heartfelt in the the desire for sharing the gospel message. And 
they may have still been doing it, but was there, you know, was there that love there in it? And uh, certainly that's something that they needed to remember. Uh, they needed to remember what, you know, what it was like in the beginning for them. They needed to go back to that first love and, and to the things that they did in the beginning and restore those in hopes of, of bringing about repentance for themselves. No, that's a great point. Jesus fought that battle with the Pharisees. Uh, they were ritualistic to the point that uh, they forgot they forgot the why, uh, what what the law did for them as far as rather than you know the acts of it. And I think you're right. We get to that point where we uh, where we're more concerned with what we're doing versus why we're doing it. Uh, if that makes sense. Yes, that's um, easy for any congregation fall into absolutely absolutely i also think this is just kind of off the top but i also think that's uh one of the benefits of evangelism uh when you when you evangelize and you're bringing new people into uh into the fold there there's a natural excitement that they have because it is new to them uh and so when you start to bring that you sometimes someone coming i have a buddy named epifanio he was on the episode before this uh, he was a new Christian, and, and his passion uh, is that of someone who's new, and for someone who's been a member of the church for, for decades, uh, it's refreshing to see people come in and be excited about things that I think sometimes, you know, growing up in the church, you may take for granted. Uh, and so I think that's a benefit of evangelism. What do you have on verse 5? Uh, verse 5, uh, this is where I've done the most of my underlining, really in verses 5 through 7, but uh, the first thing that I underline in verse five is remember. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And so, you know, tying back into the things that we'd already discussed here, they needed to they needed to be mindful of where they had been and, and get back to their get back to their origins, get back to their first love, get back to the doing things for the reason that they originally did them. And and what ties in with that, you know, naturally and in the in the text here is to repent and i think that involves any repentance before you can truly repent for anything you need to remember uh you need to go back and recognize okay yes there is a problem i have i have fallen and of course he's speaking to christians here those that are already members of the church and so Mm -hmm. they need restoration again but they need to be reminded of why uh i'm going to jump ahead just a little bit and we'll come back where we're at if you get to head to verse seven, when he's you know he's speaking to everyone, he who has an ear. So this is this is everyone that that's going to be listening, not just those congregations that he's writing to. There, this you know anyone that's going to hear this message and has an ability to apply it in their lives, uh, let him hear. They they need to hear this message and they need to know it's there and applicable to them. Uh, of course, he's talking about the spirit. You know, this is an inspired message. And then he starts talking about overcoming, or as the ESV would say, to conquer. Mm-hmm. That all ties together very nicely because in order to overcome, you need to remember and you need to repent. That was going to keep them from overcoming. Uh, and I'll get deal more with, or we'll discuss more about overcoming when we get to verse 7. But Back to verse five, uh, repent and do the first works. And, and we've already made mention of how that ties to the first love. There's, there's a connection between, between the two of them. 
or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand. Now, that's a dangerous thing for any congregation. If Jesus is walking among them, in the sense that he's you know, uh, you know, know dwelling among them, his, his presence is there, just as the presence of God was with the people in the Old Testament tabernacle, he had the right and authority to remove them, to be done with them. All because of they're just going through the routine or through the motions, missing that actional love that, that should be involved in it. That's good. Um, I'm reminded of what Jesus said, you know, when, when uh, he claimed that there were those who would say, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we prophesy in your name and so forth? And, uh, he, they would still be cast out. Same thing with the rituals. Uh, the, I circled the word this in verse four and made the point that this is a grave uh, thing. This isn't a lighthearted threat by Christ. Uh, and then you, like you said, turn it down to the lampstand, removing the lampstand. There's danger involved in this. There's danger in uh, not heeding the words of, of John in the sense of, and I like how he says, remember from where you have fallen. Uh, and, and to me, that gives them, this isn't a task that is impossible for them to accomplish because it's a task that at one time they did accomplish. And Jesus is not asking them to do something of which they're incapable of doing. He's simply asking them or commanding them, uh, for, uh, it's probably a better word, uh, to go back to what they had already done. So it is possible. Uh, and I think that is a, something we need to keep in mind when it comes to repentance is repentance is not something that we are to do that is beyond our capability. Everything that, that Christ asks us to do and commands us to do through the entirety of his, his word is something that we are more than capable to accomplish. Uh, and so uh, I, I like the way that, that it's phrased there, at least in the ESV. Um, you know, go ahead. Sorry, I'm going to jump in because that's a great point and i think it's easy to us for us to forget sometimes but we should always remember that god christ is on our side he wants us to be victorious. he wants us to be overcomers and so he's going to give us the means necessary to do so i don't remember who it was but i heard somebody say one time that there will never be a command written that you'll be able to answer i couldn't do that's a great point Wish I had said it, uh, but that's that's a good point. <laughs> that's a good point too, because you know this. I don't want to call it a threat. It's a promise. A promise to remove the lampstand was not something that he sat back and desired to do. It's something that he was willing to do, but his desire was that they repent and that the lampstand remain with them. And that, that's an excellent point. Because I think the world's view of God is that God sits in heaven waiting for us and hoping for us to fail so that he can uh, render judgment and punishment upon it when it's the complete opposite. And, mm -hmm. and the whole purpose for the warning that Jesus gives here is to bring about a change so that not that he can remove their lampstand, but that they would be able to retain uh, or keep it. That's an excellent, excellent point. 
Uh, verse 6 says, Let, uh, Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Um, Nicolaitans are mentioned here, and then they're mentioned again in verse 15 uh, when he addresses the church at Pergamum. Uh, not a lot is known about it, and I'm just going to be honest with you. I started to do a little bit of research on it. And it wasn't very interesting, and at least by my opinion, uh, as far as who Nicholas was and, and all the different types of Nicholas that perhaps. Uh, I do know in verse 14 that it's, it tends to, it looks like these are uh, Nicolaitans held to the, the thought uh, or something similar to a pagan practice as far as uh, the lustful acts uh, as well as uh, the acts of greed and so forth. Um Balaam and Jezebel are mentioned uh, uh, in this book, and, and I think the Nicolaitans would fall probably somewhere in, in similarity as far as that category goes. Uh, some say Gnostics, uh, but some of the comparisons uh, in this chapter don't really match up real well with the Gnostics. So uh, that's just historical. It doesn't matter what we do know. And I just drew a line from the works of Nicolaitans. Uh, to the phrase uh, cannot bear with those who are evil in verse two, uh, even though we don't necessarily know exactly what uh, they were guilt of what they were guilty. We do know that it was contradictory to what Christ taught, and we do know the things that are contradictory to what Christ taught. Uh, and so uh, that's the category don't won't, don't want to fall in. Pergamum, it seems as if there were those in the church of Pergamum that were trying to hold on to uh, the Nicolaitans' practices. Uh, they wanted to be Christians, and they wanted to follow the doctrine of Christ, but at the same time, they wanted to take part in the Nicolaitan practices as well. And I, re I did read, as far as the church of Pergamum, that uh, a lot of the social facets of living in Pergamum uh, involved the pagan practices. It was a hub for emperor worship, and Ephesus is not much different from that. Uh, and so I would argue that there's probably uh, some of the pagan practices that uh, were taking place in Pergamum or taking place in Ephesus, and a lot of the social uh, standings of the members relied upon whether they would take part in those practices or not. And this is a great contrast with the church at Pergamon because Pergamon seems to want to hold on to those practices while at the same time claiming Christ, where the church here at Ephesus hates the works of the Nicolaitans. They completely reject it. Uh, and Christ uh, associates himself with the church at Ephesus here at the end when he says, which I also hate. You and I are in unison with this hatred towards the acts of the Nicolaitans. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're on the right track there. Uh, I don't know, Nicolaitan. That is, that is, uh, like you said, it doesn't really matter. I mean, I think it is maybe this Epicurean form of Gnosticism that's tied into it, but it, it doesn't. It doesn't matter in the least. Uh, the point is, it's someone that Christ didn't like. He didn't agree with what they're doing. And here you have a congregation that, hey, at least in this area, they're on the right track. But we still have to be reminded of what he said back in verse four. He has something against them. And that's what they need to correct the most. That's what they need to be focused on. Uh, you know, what they did was great, but it wasn't enough. And so something has to be corrected. And I think it's important for us to remember that even in our Christianity today, 
do it because don't do it because you've always done it. Do it because it's what Jesus wants done. And right. uh, that's kind of what they need to be reminded of here. It would seem to me. No, that's, that's good. Um, I'm a big fan of, of, of the thought of, of doing things because it's what God deserves. Um, I'm reminded of, of Psalm 34, uh, when he says, come, let us, uh, magnify the Lord and let's exalt his name together. And, and there's a facet of that where, uh, and, and Paul, the same thing, you know, when he talks about being accursed for the, his kinsman's sake, being accursed from Christ for his kinsman's sake, or, uh, at the end of acts, when he talks about, I wish everyone were in my state with the exception of these bonds or shackles. And there's a facet of what we do because we have love for the souls of the lost. But there's also a facet of what we do because we have a love for God. And you made this point in uh, our area wide that even if we don't have the success in the evangelistic uh, realm, even if we don't have the success uh, by the world standards as far as attendance numbers and budgets and all that good stuff, uh, if we are genuinely doing something because we believe it's what God deserves, then that's pleasing to God. And I think that's what Jesus is touching on here. Uh, a lot of what we need to do. And I think that's where that thought you have loved, you have left your first love, uh, could maybe a- apply to their love for Christ. Uh, maybe they've forgotten that, uh, we're doing this because we, even though we could never repay Christ for what he did, I do think it should be our effort to get as close to repaying it uh, as we possibly can for that love that we have for him. Well, in one form of that repaying, it is to give ourselves faithfully to him. I mean, that's the reason he did what he did. And so certainly we need to, we need to be reminded of what God has done for us, why he did it and why we should continue in the path of heading toward faithfulness or remaining faithful to the best of our abilities. Very good. Verse seven, he was here. Let him hear uh, what the spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What do you have, Keaton? Well, what I just want to make a couple of comments about Rome. Rome made their mark on history by being conquerors. Uh, you think about what Paul says in Romans chapter eight, you know, they need to be more than conquerors talking about, you know, the Christians. Well, to, I, I see that in this, you know, that, that this is the Christian's opportunity to make their mark by being a conqueror, but not for Rome, not for an earthly purpose, but for Christ. And so that's, uh, you know, Rome was, they weren't a, a capital, but they were known because of their, or Ephesus, I'm sorry, Ephesus wasn't a capital, but it was known because it was kind of, it would almost be like the New York City of, of you know, that time that, that day and time they were they were known for their wealth and for all their the things that they had and here you have this group of people that's that's being impacted by the culture around them and they're upholding to it i mean they're they are persevering they're may, remaining true to christ but they have yet to conquer and they needed to continue working so that they could be overcomers or or conquerors and that's that's where i make the tie from it says overcome in, in my text, uh, conquer, conquerors and yours. Well, back to verse five with remember and repent. 
because those three have to go together. In order for them to overcome and to be a conqueror, they must remember, they must repent. They've got to get back on the right track. Great point. Everybody wants to overcome. Everyone wants to conquer. Not everyone's willing to to go back to what's necessary to do it. I know that's a uh, an athletic term that everyone makes. Everyone wants to be a winner, but not everyone wants to put in the work. I think the same applies here. Um, uh, very good point. Um, you have any any comments on the tree of life or the paradise uh, in the paradise of God uh, at the end? I think the paradise of God is, I mean, there was a Persian idea or Persian word referring to a walled garden. And it's just somewhere that's safe and secure and, and beautiful. I mean, it's literally a garden. You are his people, but failing to do his will. And if you want to enjoy the security and the comfort and the blessing that he's going to give in his garden, then you need to get back to doing his will. And of course, you know, if we think about the tree of life, well, we understand that. And I always find it interesting that in order for us to live, Christ had to die. Mm-hmm. Excellent point. I've underlined tree of life and I just put that, which was lost in Eden. Uh, Genesis three. And then I've underlined the paradise of God. And I put the relationship being restored, that perfect relationship being restored or that perfect fellowship being restored. Everything that was lost in the garden, God promises to restore. If we, overcome if we conquer uh, that's the i guess the beautiful thing about the benevolence of god is everything that we're being asked to do is one for our benefit eternally even though and you could even say that the life of the christian uh here on earth is the best life to live when you when you try to avoid sin then you avoid the consequences of sin the true consequences of sin the the consequences that the world will not show, but, uh, but we all know there. So, but eternally speaking, the Christian life is the most beneficial life and nothing comes close to it. Uh, and then most of all, God wants us to, and Christ specifically wants us to do all this because he wants a relationship with us. It's, it's not that, that to me, that's humbling that, uh, these commands are so that uh, we can have the relationship with Christ. Whereas, and you look at the worldly view of these things, someone who may have lost their first love, uh, for me, he and I may not have a relationship ever again, or she and I may not ever have a relationship again. But here, Christ is is exhorting them to come back because he wants to continue to have a relationship with them, even though we don't deserve it. Um, and I think that's, uh, I really enjoyed looking at at this section of scripture uh, in in detail because it always comes back to that thought that everything that God has done is so that we can have a relationship with Him and and you step back and think about with whom we are having a relationship in this matters the the Almighty the one who created everything that there is simply by speaking the most powerful uh, yet He has that desire for us uh, to be with Him. Uh, and like you said, in that place of safety, uh, in that place where uh, the relationship is restored, uh, everything that was lost uh, in Genesis chapter three, after Adam and Eve sinned, God wants to give it back and restore it. 
uh, and he's telling us how we can do it. And, you know, Second Corinthians chapter 1, uh, starting at verse 3, uh, he does it with us. That word comfort, paracletus, uh, walks beside, uh, and that's uh, the thought behind it. He, he walks with us as we endure these things. Jesus, being in the midst of this congregation, intimidating in the sense that he's there and, and watching what we are doing uh, and we should be doing what we uh, what's pleasing to him, but comforting in the fact that he's there not only witnessing and cognizant of the things and the trials that we endure, but he is with us as we endure them. He's, he's comforting us as we endure them. You know, there seems to be a, a message that speaks to all seven of these congregations, and it's basically Jesus telling them, you're too tied into this world. You, you need to focus more on the spiritual realm, less on the on the earthly realm. And that's that's a challenge. And that's why I said, you know, the, the, from chapter 2, verse 1 to chapter 3, verse 22 is all about acknowledging the challenge of faithfulness because it is a challenge. It's hard to do, but he wants you to do that. He wants you to focus on your reward and what, what's going to come and, and the blessing is to come. And for, you know, be reminded of everything that God has done for you, why he and why you wanted it in the first place. Great point. Great point. You have anything else? Because I can't think of a better way to end it than that. Nah, that's all I have, man. Time. Man, I, I appreciate you coming on. appreciate you giving, uh, giving me your time and your expertise. I enjoyed it. Uh, if you are listening to this, uh, feel free to hit us up at IYMIYB.com. Uh, let us know what you've marked in this. Let us know if you have any questions. Like, share, and subscribe. Keaton, you have anything else? No, sir. Appreciate it, brother. All right, man. Y'all take it easy, and we're out.